Hey everyone and welcome back. I wanted to give you an advanced warning regarding the case I will be covering today. There will be descriptions of child abuse, so if this episode isn't for you, I get it. But if you can work up the courage to listen, it may help the family affected get answers to this 42-year-old mystery. So if you're still listening, let's get started. In July 1979, firefighters are called to a motel fire in Red Oak, Iowa. When they arrive on scene and extinguish the fire, they discover the body of a child lying dead on the floor. On the surface, the police are convinced that it was just a tragic accident, but as additional details come to light years later, that may not be the case. This is the mysterious death of Kira Cachot. On July 12, 1979, a fire alarm rang at 2.15 p.m. Local police and firefighters received information that a fire was coming from 1303 Summit Street, which was the address for the Hilltop Motel in Red Oak, Iowa. When responders arrived, they found the motel's laundry room engulfed in flames and heavy smoke. And after putting out the fire, firefighters and police were in complete shock to find the lifeless body of a small child lying in the middle of the laundry room floor. The child was burned beyond recognition, but who the child was, was not unknown. Upon talking to the hotel manager, Karen Cachot, they discovered the child was Karen's stepdaughter, three-year-old Kiera Cachot. The Red Oak Fire Department Chief, Tom Askey, entered the laundry room to determine the source of the fire, and what he found was a one-gallon container of paint thinner with the lid removed, and the container appeared to have been dumped out. Both the can of paint thinner and the lid were in close proximity to Kira's body. According to an article in the Des Moines Register published the day after the fire on July 13th by the Register's Iowa News Service, Tom Askey stated that, according to Karen, she and Kira were in the laundry room together and Karen had to go retrieve a pass key for one of the motel rooms. So she left Kira alone in the room and said she was gone for about five minutes. When she returned, the laundry room was already engulfed in flames. Karen didn't hold back and also gave her input on how the fire started. She said Kira must have pulled the can of paint thinner off of a shelf in the room, removed the lid from the container, and proceeded to dump almost the entire contents of the can on the floor and on herself. After she dumped the contents, the fumes from the paint thinner had ignited from an open flame from the water heater that was also located in the laundry room, causing a rapid fire throughout. Initially, police believed Karen Cachot and didn't question any potential witnesses or collect any evidence to place in storage in case their theory was wrong. But shortly after finding out about Kira's death, someone came forward to investigators with some disturbing information, which should have given, at a minimum, reason to rethink the direction of their investigation. And that man was Dr. Rodman Smith. Dr. Smith told investigators that Kiera was blind, but she wasn't born that way. In fact, just a few months prior to Kiera's death, 
She had been hospitalized for a full week because both of her eyes had come into contact with a combination of Drano crystals and water. Now, just to put this into a little more context for you, the ingredients used in Drano makes this type of burn referred to as an alkali burn. The pH levels in these chemicals are very dangerous and are powerful enough to cause severe damage, especially if it comes into contact with the eyes. Severe damage could contribute to cataracts, glaucoma, vision loss, blindness, and even loss of the eye. The container that the Drano was sold in was also advertised with having a childproof cap, so it really isn't clear how Kira could have gotten the household cleaner opened by herself, and there is never an explanation given how the incident could have even happened in the first place. Kira was said to have been prescribed eyeglasses in an attempt to help her with her vision, but according to Karen, Kira couldn't even see her silverware sitting in front of her at the table. And furthermore, Kiera was not wearing her glasses the day of the fire. The doctor who took care of Kiera while she was in the hospital determined her injuries were suspicious enough that he made a call to social services in which a social worker was supposed to investigate the incident. But to this day, we don't know if that was ever done. Now, I really wish I had more information to provide, but according to sources, this wasn't Kiera's only visit to the hospital. Supposedly, Kira had been seen multiple times, but there are no reports that were made public or in the police file of her injuries or how many times she had gone to the hospital prior to her death. Kira's recent history was at least enough to get investigators on board with Dr. Smith on completing an autopsy, x-rays, and blood work. And when the autopsy results came in, it made the circumstances of Kira's death being an accident go from highly unlikely to downright impossible. Three-year-old Kira Kishou's autopsy showed that she had suffered third-degree burns to over 57% of her body. And although incredibly awful, it is something that you would expect in this particular situation. But the autopsy and x-rays showed something else too. According to the death certificate, the medical examiner concluded Kira's death was caused by neurogenic shock and the burns to her body. Neurogenic shock is a condition in which someone would have trouble keeping their heart rate, blood pressure, and temperature stable because of damage to their nervous system after a spinal cord injury. The autopsy further describes that Kira had fractures to her spinal cord, and an injury of that extent would have left Kira with either paraplegia, which is the loss of movement and sensation in the lower half of the body, or quadriplegia, which is loss of movement and sensation in all four limbs. The x-rays of Kira's chest also came into question. There were no signs of broken bones, but the x-ray of her ribs came back inconclusive, so it couldn't be confirmed or ruled out if she had suffered any rib fractures. For those of you listening, I can imagine that your jaw hit the floor just like mine, wondering how Kira could have suffered a spinal cord injury. And from what I could gather, the findings of Kira's autopsy claim she sustained the injuries before the fire, but investigators don't even question Karen about their little girl's injury. Now, I can't help but question not only what was included in her autopsy, but also what was missing. According to the investigative reports, blood work had been done, but there is no mention of the results, which leads me to believe that nothing was found. Now, there can be exceptions, but usually if a person dies in a fire, they will likely have some level of COHB in their system, 
or at a minimum, at least have the presence of soot in their airway. But Kira's autopsy doesn't disclose that any of this was present. And there is no mention if there had been any smoke in her lungs either. Now, if these things that I pointed out are true, then the only possibility that makes sense is that Kira wasn't even alive when the fire started. But without a clear answer at this time, we just can't be sure. Another thing to point out for any true crime fanatic like me, something that gets brought up quite a bit in fire deaths is the positioning of the body when it's found. The first responders who found Kira had said besides the burns to her body, Kira was lying completely flat as if she were sleeping and anyone that knows about what fire does to bodies knows about the pugilistic posture, also known as the boxer's pose. For those of you who don't know what this means, I will briefly explain. So the boxer's pose occurs when a fire makes the muscles shrink, which in turn causes the joints to flex. Signs of this would be noticed in the fingers, wrist, elbows, and knees. A lot of times people removed from fires would look as if they were trying to block themselves from the fire. However, if the body doesn't take on the boxer pose, it could be an indicator that the joints were damaged and unable to flex and that would also be a sign of injury before the fire. Now, everything I just described that wasn't addressed in Kira's autopsy is speculation at this time on my part, because none of it is made public, so sadly, we just don't know. Now, according to a statement made by Karen Cushow of her recollection of events changes a little bit. Now, I don't know for sure if the initial reports were more vague because officials weren't releasing the full details to the press, or if Karen just didn't provide a more detailed account until she was brought back in for a statement. But in an official police report, Karen stated that she had taken Kira to the motel sometime between 1.30 and 1.45 p.m. And while she changed bedding in two of the motel rooms, specifically room six and eight, Kira was nearby sitting on the step to the laundry room playing with an empty pop bottle. According to Karen, the laundry room door was open at the time. Karen then said she had to go back to the family's house to get a pass key for one of the other rooms, which was about 100 yards away. So she left Kira at the motel and said she was gone for about five minutes. When she returned, the laundry room door was closed and she couldn't find Kira. She then said she needed to go into the laundry room to get some towels, but was unable to get into the laundry room because of the smoke and flames. That's when Karen says she immediately ran back to the home and called in the fire. But there is at least one major problem with this statement. Reported documents on file with police, as well as the fire marshal, show conflicting information about what actually took place after the fire had started. According to records with the Iowa State Fire Marshal, we know the call came in at 2.15 p.m., but their records state the fire was not called in by Karen Cushow. A foreman of a construction crew that was working nearby had actually called it in. Two of the crew members, Terry Sellers and Phil Harris, stopped what they were doing when they smelled smoke and heard people screaming. The men ran to the motel but were unable to enter the laundry room because of the heat coming from the room and the amount of smoke as well. In an investigative report dated August 1st, Special Agent Roy Marshall of the Iowa State Marshal Division interviewed both Karen and Kira's dad, Wayne Cushow, and during the interview, he had learned of Kira's recent eye injury but said the details on how exactly the injury was caused wasn't given to him. He had also asked both parents about the can of paint thinner, but both of them stated they never recalled seeing it, 
and they didn't know what was all stored in the laundry room. He went back to the hotel room and took additional pictures of the crime scene and went to the funeral home to view Kira's body. And that is when he spoke with Dr. Smith, who expressed his concern regarding alleged abuse and that his suspicions were reported to social services. On August 9th, an article was published in the Red Oak Express regarding the conclusion of the investigation into Kira's death. And the article read as follows. The investigation into the death of Kira Lee Cachot, three, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Wayne Cachot, has been completed. The investigative report is consistent with the original indications of an accidental fire caused by Ms. Cachot pouring or spilling a flammable liquid in a confined area that was readily accessible to fire. The investigative report includes the findings of the local law enforcement agencies, the county medical examiner, the Red Oak Fire Department, and agent of the state fire marshal's office, and an autopsy. The investigative report was completed on August 1st and was prepared by Special Agent Roy Marshall. There are a few of these findings in the report, which I will go over briefly. On Thursday, July 12, 1979, Fire Prevention Inspector Carol Schisler contacted Special Agent Roy Marshall to advise of a fire that had occurred in Red Oak, and Fire Chief Tom Askey requested assistance. Agent Marshall arrived in Red Oak around 3.30 p.m. and met Tom Askey at the scene. They received information that the fire alarm had been received at 2.15 p.m., and upon arrival, the fire department found the fire in the motel's laundry room. They found Kira lying on her back in the center of the room. Chief Askey found a one-gallon open container of DuPont brand paint thinner, type 3608S, sitting upright on the floor next to the child with only one to two inches of paint thinner left in the container. The laundry room was centrally located in the building with rooms on both sides. The room contained a washer and dryer and a natural gas water heater. The water heater was located in the room's northwest corner. The room sustained extensive damage, but there was no area found with deep charring of excessive low burning. The appearance was of an extremely fast and even fire throughout the room. The metal lid to the can of paint thinner was found on the floor just a few inches from Kira's body and a pile of linens was located beside the body, and the smell of paint thinner was noticeable on them. Official investigative report makes no mention of Karen ever placing a call to the fire department. The fire caused Kara to sustain third-degree burns to over 57% of her body. Now, the fire department said that they were unable to determine the origin of the fire and referred to the fire as a conflagration which is a destructive fire that covers a vast amount of space almost instantly and is most often a deliberate fire intended to cover up fraud, murder, sabotage, diversion, or pyromania. Even with all the evidence pointing to something more sinister, it looks like police basically ignored all of it and closed the case as a tragic accident less than a month after Kira died. And that is where the case sat from 1979 all the way up to 2007. And what Karen Cushow didn't realize was that there were three different witnesses who had a very different story to tell in Karen's events leading up to and surrounding the fire.
Kira's time with Wayne and Karen Cachot started in 1977. She and her older sister, Bernadette, who was three at that time, were living in Wisconsin with their mother, Deborah Butler, along with the rest of the Cachot family. According to Deborah, she had custody of the girls and Wayne was granted visitation. During a visit, Wayne and Karen took the girls and fled from Wisconsin to Red Oak and never told Deborah where they were going. Deborah said Wayne did not have permission to take the girls and tried everything she could to find them, but police ignored her and there was never a missing person report or abduction report filed, and the Cachot family knew where the family was, but they refused to tell Deborah. Sadly, Deborah didn't even find out where her daughters were until one month after Kira's death, so she wasn't even able to be present to bury her youngest child. Deborah was a full-blood La Couture Indian from Wisconsin, and Wayne was white, so the girls were mixed, but definitely showed their Native American ancestry through their physical characteristics. Bernadette states that this fact played heavily into the negligence of the police department and fire department regarding her sister's death, and honestly, I'm kind of inclined to agree. Red Oak at the time was a predominantly white community, and to this day still is, with 96% of the community being white. And in my research, I could only find three total newspaper articles regarding Kira's death, two that were local, and one that the Des Moines Register picked up. But beyond that, with all the inconsistencies in Karen's story and the blatant lies she told, it was downright outrageous that there wasn't a more thorough investigation in 1979. But that didn't stop the family, because in 2007, Sandra Cachot, Kira and Bernadette's aunt, contacted a Wisconsin attorney with additional information in an attempt to reopen the case, and she had a story to tell. The attorney she reached out to contacted law enforcement, and from there they referred the case to a retired Lakeland, Florida homicide detective named Janet Franson. After Janet investigated the case herself, she reached out to Iowa cold cases, and as of today, Kira's picture is one of many currently listed as an unsolved homicide. According to Sandra, in 1979, five-year-old Bernadette had confided in her about what she remembered the day before and the day of her sister's death. So we have to go back to the afternoon and evening of July 11, 1979. The information I will now tell you is according to Kira's older sister, Bernadette Cachot, and may be disturbing to hear. From what I can gather, the girls' father, Wayne, worked during the day, so Karen was the one providing care during the day for the girls while he was gone. According to allegations brought forth, Karen would often lock the two girls out of the home while their dad was gone at work, and July 11th was no different. While the girls were locked outside, Kira told her sister she needed to go back inside to use the bathroom. So Bernadette began banging on the door yelling for Karen to let them in because Kira had to go to the bathroom. Bernadette was ignored and the door remained locked. Little Kira just couldn't hold it anymore and ended up soiling her clothes. Eventually, Karen did open the door to ensure the girls were in the house before Wayne returned home. But when she found out Kira had an accident, she was pissed. She brought the girls inside and took them straight to the bathroom and began to run a bath. Karen got Bernadette in the bathtub first. Then while undressing Kira and seeing her soiled clothes, Karen became enraged and began to violently shake her. It isn't clear how long this lasted, but when she was done, she had put Kira in the bathtub. As Kira was set in the bathtub, she had gone limp. 
She couldn't sit up, move, or even talk. Karen then left the bathroom and Kiera began to slide under the water. Bernadette remembers trying with all her might to keep her little sister's head above the water so she wouldn't drown. During Bernadette's struggle to save her sister, Karen returned and pulled Kira out of the bathtub and wrapped her in a blanket she had brought with her and took her out of the bathroom. Karen returned a short time later, took Bernadette out of the tub, got her dressed, and put her in the girl's bedroom. After this, Wayne returned home from work with McDonald's for his family for dinner. Karen was sitting in a rocking chair, rocking back and forth, holding Kira still wrapped in the blanket. Bernadette came out of her room when her dad arrived home and just looked at him. He looked at her, then turned his head to his wife and asked what was wrong with Kira. Karen continued to rock back and forth and just told him she was sick. The girls shared a room as well as a bed, so Bernadette laid awake for a while that night waiting for Kira to come in, but she never did. The next day, Bernadette was playing on a swing set outside and Karen had brought Kira outside. Kira was wearing training pants and no other clothes. Bernadette had asked Karen if Kira could play, but Karen told her no because Kira was still sick. Bernadette said she has told the story many times to people about what happened and recalls the events pretty well. The afternoon of the fire, five-year-old Bernadette, Karen's 16-year-old daughter Kelly, and a longtime motel tenant all watched as Karen carried Kira to the laundry room opened the laundry room door, took Kira inside, and exited without her. Karen had then walked a few rooms down before what sounded like an explosion from the laundry room was heard. Not a single one of them were ever questioned by police or the fire chief. So it had seemed that there was at least notable abuse going on well before Kira's death, and yet here we are. So let's recap what we know about the circumstances around Kira's death. We know that Karen lied and said she called 911 when she clearly didn't. According to Bernadette, Karen severely injured Kira the night before the fire, causing a spinal cord injury and leaving her at least paralyzed from the waist down. And the fact alone that Kira was practically blind would have made it pretty unlikely that she would have even been able to see the bottle of paint thinner, let alone take it off of a shelf, open it and dump it out. So please make this make sense. How is a blind and paralyzed three-year-old child capable of doing what Karen said she did? As far as I can tell, she can't. Now, I am certainly no investigator, but unless there is more information that I don't know about this, it screams foul play. And thankfully, many others agree. About six years ago, a man named Tyler Davis, who was born and raised in Red Oak, came across Kira's heartbreaking story and started an online petition which received 721 signatures requesting to reopen and investigate Kira's death. The petition received enough signatures to be eligible to send to Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, but as of today, there has been no new information to report. Sandra passed away from cancer in July of 2013, and after Deborah learned where her daughters were, she was able to get Bernadette and take her back to Wisconsin. To this day, Bernadette is a huge advocate of her baby sister. She runs a Facebook page and had this to say, Quote, they did not find my sister on time. She was burnt beyond recognition. I have told this story many times, and for whatever reason, it has been ignored or blown off. I was never questioned by authorities until my aunt tried to reopen the case, and then only to find Iowa will not do anything because they messed up. I believe one day the truth will come out. I don't know how, but it will. 
whether it is because we were just two Indian girls in a predominantly white population, our life was less important. I don't know, but we were cast off. And since I went away to my mother, nothing was further asked. Bernadette goes on to say, many wanted to investigate, but were put off. Not only do I have my personal word and memories, I have other forms of proof and nothing will ever change my mind that this was an accident or that Kira did it to herself. Karen Cachot has been able to go on and live her life, while Kira's family still continues to grieve for the daughter, sister, niece, cousin, and granddaughter that was tortured and killed before she even had a chance to live. Today is the day that the lies need to stop and the truth needs to come out. If you have any information regarding the mysterious death of three-year-old Kira Lee Cachot, please contact the IDCI at 515-725-6010. You can also find additional content information for law enforcement agencies at iowacoldcases.org under the case summary for Kira Cachot. I also want to include a very big thank you and debt of gratitude to Jody Ewing, who founded the Iowa Cold Case website back in 2005 and to this day continues to run it. Without her work with the victim's family and investigative skills, today's episode would have never been possible. And by sharing Kira's story, we may even be one step closer to providing answers to the Cachot family. For additional case details on Kira Cachot or any other unsolved murder or disappearance, also visit iowacoldcases.org. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Tune in next week for a new episode. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. You can find Secrets in the Cornfield, Iowa's Unsolved on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to join the Facebook page, search Secrets in the Cornfield podcast and request to join the group. In order to help the families and provide a voice for the victims, please make sure that you follow, rate the show, and share with friends and family.